Good morning, everyone. Um, as Josh mentioned earlier, my name is Mike Venzel, and I'm one of the ruling elders here at Colleyville Presbyterian Church. I'm filling in for him and for our assistant pastor, Jeff Prager, so they can have a rest from the preparation involved in the pulpit as uh, summer draws to a close and we look forward to the beginning of our fall schedule. Um, I know almost everyone, but for the sake of any visitors and anyone that uh, I've not met before, uh, let me introduce myself briefly. Um, I teach 11th grade at a classical high school, Great Hearts Academy in Irving, Texas. Well, obviously it's in Texas. Um, I'm married to Rachel. Uh, we've been married for 20 years, and we've been members of our family here at the congregation since uh, 2016. Uh, she's a professional counselor and also serves as the director of women's care uh, here at the church. And we have two children, Connor, who's 13, and Natalie, who is 11. Um, we love this church very much, and uh, it's a great honor to be with you this morning as we open the word together. Uh, this summer, we've been continuing our tradition of pausing the regular preaching schedule and spending the summer months in the Psalter. Last week, Jeff Prager took us through Psalm 74, a psalm of Asaph that laments the destruction of Solomon's temple. This week, we consider Psalm 75, another psalm of Asaph. But unlike the previous one, this is a psalm of thanksgiving, not a psalm of lament. Uh, the opening words are, we give thanks to you, O God. And that tone of thanksgiving, it runs throughout the entire psalm. Uh, we read it responsively only moments ago, but I'd like to read it once more before we turn to it in earnest. Um, it's printed on the back of the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. So listen one more time to God's word as we find it in Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me this morning. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant this morning that we may so hear, read, mark, and inwardly digest it, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. One of the most beloved series of books from my childhood, and perhaps from yours too, I suspect for many of you it's the case, is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And for me, one of the most memorable moments in those stories is when Aslan, that stunning and majestic lion who is lord of all Narnia, is mentioned for the very first time. The moment comes early in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The children have just discovered that Tumnus has been arrested, and as they try to figure out what to do, they notice Mr. Beaver off in the woods. 
He introduces himself to them, explains that he was sent there by Thomas, and then leaning in toward them, he whispers excitedly, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. And that is the first mention of Aslan's name. And when the beaver said those words, Lewis tells us, and I'm quoting here, a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but at the name of Aslan, each one felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter suddenly felt brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. So intrigued, the children follow Mr. Beaver to his home, and when they safely arrive, they hear for the first time just who Aslan is. Mr. Beaver explains he's the king. He's the lord of the whole world, but of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Not, never in my time or in my father's time, but the word has reached us that he's come back. He's in Narnia at this moment, and he'll settle the white queen all right. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we'll have spring again. Now, I'd argue that something very similar to that moment is happening in the opening of Psalm 75. We're told in the first verse of the psalm, that the name of the Lord is near. And that fills the whole congregation of Israel with wonder, excitement, awe, and thanksgiving. It's easy for us modern readers to misunderstand exactly what that phrase, the name of the Lord is near, means. The name of the Lord isn't a mere word. It's not some verbal tag we've attached onto God. It refers to God himself, his very essence and his attributes. Uh, if you doubt that, think back to Exodus 34, where we're told that God declared his name to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And remember, that the way he did that was by hiding Moses in the cleft of a rock and allowing all of his glory to pass by. Glory so intense that were Moses not hidden in the rock, he'd have been destroyed by it. So when the name of the Lord is near, it means that God himself in all his glory has drawn close, that he's tabernacled among his people much the same way that Aslan had landed in Narnia. And just as Mr. Beaver breaks into a poem describing how Aslan's arrival is going to set everything right in Narnia, in the same way in this psalm, the Israelites break into a song describing how God's nearness is going to set everything right in the world. That's the very next thing they do. They recount all of God's wondrous deeds. So in the time we have this morning, I want to look more closely at how Psalm 75 goes on to describe those wondrous deeds of God. I want to look at three things with you. Uh, first, I want to look at what those deeds include. Second, I want to look at who it is that's going to perform those deeds. And third, I want to look at how we should respond to them. So what they include, who's going to perform them, how we should respond. Let's look at those things together. Let's start with what they include. The psalmist describes these wondrous deeds of God in verses 2 through 8. And those verses, if you look closely, they divide into two sections, as Josh mentioned earlier. One, where God speaks, that starts almost immediately in verse 2, and it runs through verse 5. Then there's another where the psalmist speaks, and he's commenting, essentially, on what God just said. That's verses 6 through 8. 
And as we move through those verses, we'll see that God's wondrous deeds involve five distinct things. The first is a future judgment. When we look at the section where God speaks, the very first verse says, At the set time, I will judge with equity. God assures us here that he doesn't forget or overlook wickedness and that he's going to hold men accountable for all of their deeds, every last one of them down to the most minute and hidden. But if you notice, he also says he's going to do that at a set time. His judgment is going to take place at some point in the future, a point that he himself has chosen. The second thing we seem to see in these verses, the second of God's wondrous deeds, is preservation. That comes in the very next verse. In verse 3, God says, When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it's I who keep, its, who keep steady its pillars. This appears to be a reassurance that though judgment is delayed and the violence of the wicked might swell during that time, God is still the Lord. He'll restrain their evil deeds and sustain what he's made until the day of his coming. And in that day, he'll assuredly set everything right. Now, we might pause at that point for just a moment and ask, why does God delay his judgment in this way? And why is that cause for praise? Why is that a wondrous deed? Why not? Why allow wickedness to continue? Why not just judge the nations and be done with that? Wouldn't that be more glorious? And Scripture offers, I think, several answers to that question. In some cases, God is allowing wickedness to run its course so that the justice of his judgment is clear for everyone to see. In Genesis 15, 16, for example, he tells Abraham that he's going to delay giving Abraham's children the promised land for several generations because the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. He seems to be saying that he wants the sin of the Amorites to reach a kind of fever pitch so that when he finally removes them from the land and gives it to Israel, his justice in doing so is loud and clear and, in a sense, all the more glorious. But elsewhere, Scripture tells us that God delays out of mercy for the sake of giving the wicked the opportunity to repent. We see that in Jonah where he delays judgment on Nineveh and hope that the city will turn from its evil ways. And that, I think, is what's going on in Psalm 75, because God's statements in the next two verses address the wicked and call them to just such a repentance. That's the third of God's wondrous deeds that we see in this section, a call to repentance and an offer of forgiveness. He says to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, don't lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. He's inviting the wicked in these verses to turn from their ways, and he's delaying his judgment in the hope that they'll heed him while there's still time. Now that brings the explicit words of God to a close. And in verse 6, we turn to the section where Asaph is commenting on God's words. And here we see the fourth of God's wondrous works, the exaltation of the lowly. That comes out in verses 6 and 7 where we're told that it's not from the east or the west and not from the wilderness that that comes lifting up, but it's God who executes judgment. And when he executes that judgment, he will put down one and lift up another. The psalmist is warning the wicked 
that whatever strength, power, or wealth they presently enjoy is due to God alone. It doesn't come from their own efforts or from any other created thing, not something out of the east, not something out of the west, not something in the wilderness. And when God executes his judgment at that appointed future time, he will put down one and lift up another. He'll bring down the boastful and the wicked from their high places, and he'll lift up the humble and the lowly. The biblical scholar Derek Kidner calls this the great reversal, and he notes that it's an extremely prominent biblical theme. Uh, one place where it comes through clearly in, in the Old Testament is the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. If you remember, Hannah had gone to God and prayed for a son, and when God answered her prayer, she sang, and here's her song, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. When God judges, he will lift up and he will bring down. But the Lord doesn't merely bring down the boastful and arrogant. The psalmist goes on to tell us what he does with them after he's brought them down. He will make them drink the cup of his wrath. This is the fifth of the wondrous deeds of God, and it comes out in verse 8. The psalmist tells us that there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and God will pour out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. In this verse, he's comparing the final judgment to a cup of bitter wine that has pungent spices mixed in it, so many that it's beginning to foam. And the arrogant men who persist in their sin will be forced to drink from that cup and endure the full range of its effects. So in sum, verses 2 through 8 tell us that God's wondrous works are going to involve five things. There's five things the psalmist focuses on. They are, reordering them just a bit, a future day of judgment. In that day, an exaltation of the lowly. In that day also, a cup of wrath for the wicked. In the meantime, a restraint of wickedness for the sake of preserving the earth and God's people on the earth. And, at the same time, an opportunity for the wicked to repent. These are the wondrous works God will do because his name has drawn near. These are the ways that the presence of God's name on earth will transform the earth and bring in a glorious kingdom. But in the last two verses of the psalm, the psalmist goes one step further. He tells us who is going to bring these wondrous works about. And so I want to turn and consider that question next. Part two. Who is going to perform these works? Now, that question might seem perfectly obvious. It's God's wondrous works we're rehearsing here, after all. Is, is there really a question? But the last two verses of the psalm paint, I think, a more complicated and more beautiful picture. Verse 9 takes us back to where the psalm started. I'll declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, the psalmist says. Just like verse 1, this is a recounting of the wondrous things God has done and a giving of thanks. So verses 1 and verse 9, they almost seem to bookend the psalm, and we might even expect it to just end right there. But there's this final line, and it says something curious. 
All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Now that's another description of what Derek Kidner called the great reversal. Earlier in the psalm, the wicked are warned about lifting up their horns, and here those horns are cut off while the horns of the righteous are lifted up. It's another picture of the exaltation of the lowly and the bringing down of the proud. But what's curious is who cuts off the horns. The text says, I will cut them off. And as we look back to see who's speaking, you might think it was the psalmist, the one who said in the previous verse, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Yet earlier in the psalm, we were told that it's God and God alone who does these things. So how should we understand that final verse? Now, one possibility is that it's not actually the psalmist speaking here, but God. Maybe there's another unannounced shift to God's voice in the final verse, kind of like we had earlier in the psalm. But that's not the only possibility. It may, in fact, be the psalmist speaking here, and the verse is meant to indicate that when God performs his wondrous deeds, he'll do it through Israel and specifically through someone who represents the congregation and leads them in worship. If that's right, then this final verse seems to be a claim that God's wondrous deeds are ultimately going to be performed by Israel's future Messiah. And as such, it would be a claim that these deeds are going to be performed by none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And whether that's the correct reading or not, what's unmistakable, my friends, is that when we get to the New Testament, everything that this psalm talks about, all the wondrous deeds of God that are mentioned in the psalm, are specifically and explicitly credited to our Lord Jesus. Just go back to the beginning with me for a second. It's through Christ that the name of God has come near to us. The book of Hebrews tells us that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And in John 17, 6, Jesus summarized his ministry in a prayer to his father. He said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. And so it's in Christ that the glory of God has come into our midst and tabernacled among us, as John 1 says. It's in Christ that God has proclaimed to us his name in a more glorious way than he proclaimed it to Moses. And the New Testament goes on to say that all the wondrous deeds that accompany the presence of God's name, all of the wondrous deeds that are mentioned in the psalm, are specifically performed by our Lord Jesus. It's Christ, the New Testament tells us, who will judge the nations in equity at a set time that God has appointed. At that time, he's going to exalt the lowly. That came out in our gospel reading this morning when Mary sang that through her son, God would bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt all those of humble estate. In that day, Christ will also force the wicked to drink from the cup of God's wrath. That came out in our epistle reading. When the city of Babylon is judged by being made to drink a double portion of the cup of wine that she herself mixed. 
In the meantime, Christ promises to restrain the wickedness on the earth and preserve his people. Remember that he told Peter that he would build his church and the gates of hell, no matter how they rage and struggle, will not prevail against it, will not be able to withstand its forward march and its advance. And perhaps most glorious of all, in the meantime, as we wait for that day, Christ offers a call to repentance to all those who are ungodly. Remember that he said while he was on earth that just as a physician is for those who are sick, so he is for sinners. And he promises to receive anyone who comes to him. And interestingly, I think this psalm also gives us a way to talk about what Jesus does with us when, he, when we come to him. We could describe it, if you will, by saying that he gives us a new name and a new cup. He takes the name of God, the one manifested among us, that's giving the Israelites such thanksgiving at the beginning of the psalm. He takes that name and he writes it on us. That's what happens, isn't it, when we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The very name of God is put upon us and we're claimed as his own. And he also gives us a new cup. He takes the cup of wrath that was properly ours, and what does he do? He drinks it on our behalf. That's how he described his sufferings on the cross the night before in the garden, the night that he was betrayed. You remember, he said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. The events of the next day are a cup, a cup of foaming wine, right, well mixed. And having drained that cup on our behalf, he then gives you and I a new one filled with the wine of his blood, not the wine of God's wrath, a cup that has been turned into a cup of blessing and is no longer a cup of judgment. So these things then are the wondrous deeds of God that, that uh, these, uh, excuse me, these things are the wondrous deeds of God that have taken place in Christ. And they take place in him specifically because in him God's name has drawn near. In Christ, God's name is drawn near, and everything that Psalm 75 takes, uh, speaks of is fulfilled in him, in his ministry, in his person, in his work. So how should we respond to these things? Let's turn to that question this morning as we come to a close. Now, to figure out how we should respond, it's not difficult. We need only go back to the very beginning of the psalm. The opening line says, we give thanks to you, O God, and then repeats it. We give thanks. Twice they sing a song of thanks. That should be our response. We should join the company of God's people. Remember, they're singing corporately, and with them all, we should sing our thanks and offer up to God a life of grateful obedience. Now, some of you may find that a very natural and easy response to all of the things that we've heard, and if so, praise the Lord. But I want to acknowledge that for many of us, that may be difficult. For many of us, when we read a, a Thanksgiving psalm, it may be hard to join our voice with the chorus. Some of us may be like Asaph in Psalm 73, if you remember from two weeks ago, we see the arrogance and prosperity of wicked men, and that tempts us to despair. And it's easy to feel that way. There are people around the world and even our own, in our own country who scoff at the church. 
and they seem to get away with their behavior. And many of them have significant power, wealth, and influence. And their numbers seem to be on the rise. And for many of us, those people aren't just statistics. They include our immediate or extended family. Maybe our coworkers or neighbors, perhaps even friends, in some cases former friends, people who no longer wish to associate with us. Others of you may feel like the Israelites in Psalm 74 who mourned over the destruction of the temple. It may feel like something as central and important to us as the temple in our world has fallen apart, and it's hard to believe that it's ever going to go back to being as it once was. And that's easy for us to feel as well, isn't it? might take the form of unemployment or a financial crisis where we wonder how in the world we're going to pull through. Maybe we've suffered abusive mistreatment by somebody who should have loved and cared for us. Maybe we're struggling with infertility or divorce or bereavement. A child or a spouse that we expected to have either didn't come or isn't coming back. Maybe we or a loved one are in the grip of serious, even terminal illness, and it's hard for us to think about anything else at night. Or maybe we're suffering from something I haven't named, but that's every bit as grievous to us as the things that I did name. When we're in the grip of those feelings, it can be very hard to read a Thanksgiving psalm. It can be very hard to want to lift our voices up and and give thanks. And I want to acknowledge that, but even if you find yourself there, this psalm is for you. And in fact, it contains some extremely loving counsel for all of us from our Heavenly Father about what to do in those moments. The Lord doesn't want us to be consumed by fear or despair. He doesn't want us to give in to bitterness or anger. And He certainly doesn't want us to go looking for happiness in a worthless idol whether it be in the east or the west or in the wilderness. He wants us, beloved, to do one thing. And he mentions it at the beginning of this psalm and again at the end. He wants us to recount his wondrous deeds, or as he puts it at the end of the psalm, to declare them. He wants us to gather with his people and in their company tell out loud the story of what he has done. That's what turned Asaph's heart around in Psalm 73, if you recall. He was consumed with despair, but then he went to worship and he contemplated the great things of God. And if your heart is like his this morning, God would have you do the same thing. And indeed, he counsels you to do the same thing in this psalm as well. He wants, and specifically, he wants you to contemplate the great things he has done in Christ the things we've discussed this morning. He wants you to remember that Christ is coming in due time. He will not tarry. That when he comes, he will exalt the lowly and judge the wicked. And in doing so, he'll make all things new and he'll wipe every tear, every last tear from our eyes. That in the meantime, as we wait for him, he is pledged to preserve and defend us. And he intercedes for us even now at God's right hand to that end. That he's washed us clean and made us his own. That he's given us both a new name and a new cup. 
And we have a token of that cup this morning as we, as we do every week. The table is, among other things, a remembrance of Christ. And the Apostle Paul tells us that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The table is the place, dear friends, where we can recount God's wondrous deeds in Christ week by week. And as we dwell on these things with each other, even if our circumstances don't change until he comes again, our hearts will be gently lifted into thanksgiving. They'll be lifted there by the sheer beauty, the sheer majesty of who Christ is and the wonder of all that he's become for his people. So if you're like me, and at times it is hard to lift my voice and give thanks with the chorus of God's people, if it is hard to remember God's blessings, if it's hard to see past the difficulties in this life, let's do as this psalm counsels us. Let's remember Jesus and declare to ourselves and to one another all God's wondrous deeds in him. I love the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. They become more precious to me every year that goes by, as I hope they do for you. And in its words, let's remind one another as we gather that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's remind one another that he's paid for all our sins with his precious blood and set us free from all the power of the devil. Let's remember that he's preserving us in such a way that without the will of our Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our head. Indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. And let's remember that by his Holy Spirit, he assures us of eternal life and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. As we gather with each other week by week, as we come to the table week by week, beloved, let's remember these things. Let's preach them to one another. Let's listen as they're preached to us from the word. And as we do, I trust that we'll be able to join the psalmist and all God's people throughout the ages in giving thanks. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for all the wondrous things you have done for us in Christ. Thank you that in him your name has drawn near and the horns of the righteous have been lifted up. Help us to see the glory of these things and may that glory stir us to a glad thanksgiving. And would you do that even now as we come to the table? For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.